This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us another installment of our series, One Mom versus the Machine. She was played in a television movie by Cicely Tyson and her husband by a young Morgan Freeman, which you'll hear throughout this feature. She never expected this to happen or wanted this to happen, but it was born out of something simple that she did want her students to learn. Not so much to ask, or so she thought, but it was, as Marva Collins would soon find out. I have to stay after. I have a teacher's conference. Listen here. Remember, keep your temper. I can't, not if I think my students are going to get the short end. Marva, you can't fight the whole system, sugar. Wanna bet? You should have cereal in your mouth, sweetheart. Not smart remarks. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. Put your back, rock, You children want to go outside? Fine. Me? I have a lot of teaching to do, and I'm going to go right on doing it. Okay? Where were we? You got to get our federal reports in on time. The deadline was last Thursday. I got seven, and three of those are incomplete. Mr. Duffy, is there anything we can do about the false alarms that keep interrupting the classes? False alarms are not on the agenda. You'll have to wait on that one. But we had another one today. That is the sixth one this week. Last week we had eight of them. Can't we do something about those false alarms? Mrs. Collins, we're supposed to be talking about registers and federal reports. Now, the deadline was last week, and some of you still haven't turned them in. Tomorrow. Mine will be in tomorrow. Mr. Duffy, there are always forms to be filled out someplace. They are eternal. It is the loss of teaching time that concerns me. You're the assistant principal. Talk to the district. Can't they do something about lessening our paperwork? The district? Those numbskulls lose one more IQ point, and Duffy will be talking to a plant. (laughs) (laughs) That is not funny. Just say you'll do the stupid report so we can get out of here. Yeah, give them some busy work and fill in the reports during class. Class time is for teaching. Why bother? They won't learn. They won't learn if we don't bother. I've scheduled a field trip for next Wednesday. The zoo. But the children have already gone to the zoo. The children love field trips. I think you love field trips, Miss Denny. It's easier than teaching. Why, the children don't even know which zoo they visited. In case you haven't noticed, Mrs. Collins, we are in a ghetto. These children don't want to learn. The ghetto is not the enemy, Miss Denny. I suppose you mean we are. Indifference is. I've had it up to here with your platitudes, Mrs. Collins. I, for one, don't get my kicks out of playing dress-up and strutting through this school quoting the classics. I dress the way I do, Miss Denny, because I happen to believe that my children deserve a positive image. Ladies, 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 ladies,
I says, good. If you can do that, you can learn the Canterbury Tales in Old English, too. I don't know half of what those rap songs are saying, but they know every line. What makes us think, then, that they become such learning disabilities when they get to school? I'm raw hustlers, get your bacon soda. Too many rape the culture. Leave rappers with careers and they faith over. It's a war going on. You can't fake being a soldier. But were I Brutus and Brutus Anthony, there were an Anthony would ruffle up your spirit and put a tongue in every wound of Caesar that should move the stones of Rome to rise and mutiny. So now we know that Antony's oration of Caesar was a good example of what? Eddie? How words can sway the masses. And what happens when words sway you that way? We don't think for ourselves. Are you going to be like the masses? Are you going to allow words to hypnotize you? No! And after these short messages, we'll hear what Marva Collins, this courageous teacher in Chicago's inner city, does next. You won't want to miss it. And what I wanted to do right now, before we head into the next segment, is read two passages from Martha's book, Ordinary Children, Extraordinary Teachers. Quote, I don't know of any other profession that, when it fails, blames those whom it set out to help. Do lawyers keep saying, well, it's the client's fault? Do doctors keep saying, it's the patient's fault? Or airline pilots? Do they say it's the passenger's fault? And this too, she writes, quote, The male student, the inner-city black male, is a real problem for some schools and some school districts. Teachers often seem fearful of these boys, but they don't realize these children have something wonderful and special inside that is trying to escape. They remind me of what Michelangelo said about a piece of marble. Inside is an angel trying to get out. I think of that in our school environment. There is a great deal of toughness and of tough talk on the street and in the school, but inside is a child who wants to be accepted, a child who wants to succeed. When we continue, again, more of the life of Marva Collins, one mom versus the machine. Marva is the founder of Westside Preparatory School. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And to catch all of our work, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org.
This is Our American Stories, and we now continue with our own Alex Cortez's feature on the life story of Marva Collins, one of the most powerful teachers to ever walk this earth, and in one of the least powerful areas of this country, Chicago's inner city. But before we do that, I want to read one more passage, and I'll continue to through this hour, from Marva's book, Ordinary Children, Extraordinary Teachers. And I'm quoting here, I'll often say to my students that we can be ever so clever, but we also have to learn first how to be human. That's why I emphasize philosophy as found in some of the world's classic literary works. The students study Ralph Emerson's self-reliance and can quote the famous line, any man who would be a man must first be a nonconformist. I think that's very important, for among other things, it helps develop individuality and respect for differences. And now let's return to Marva Collins' battle against an indifferent public school bureaucracy. Why do people keep ripping up our class? children. You children have been doing wonderfully well. And I guess I've been sharing my pride with the wrong people at the wrong time. Some people get jealous. But you will never let others stop us from what? Learning! Learning. So, let's have your theme. Listen, Peach. Whoever messed up my desk wants to obsess. And it's up to us to decide whether we're going to let them or not. And quitting or running to Mr. Duffy or even crying isn't going to change a thing. Quitting did not build a Sears Tower, nor did it write the Magna Carta. Children, you must remember that when you enter the workforce, nobody's going to care that they broke into your teacher's room or whether or not you had sheets to sleep on when you were little or whether you grew up in the ghetto. The only thing your boss is going to care about is what? Whether you can, can. or can. can. That's right. So, who is the most important child in this world? I am. And what is the most important time? No. Now. And I don't want you to waste either one of them. So, uh, how's the teachers' meeting go? I still happened to have this false alarm on my floor that keeps going oh, off, Mr. On. Duffy. Oh, Mrs. Collins, don't you have anything better to do than worry about that fire bell? I can't face another term, Clarence. I just can't. I still want to quit. Well, sugar, you're going to do what you're going to do. You want to teach someplace else? Do it. No. I want to open my own school. Open your own school? Yes. Boy, you think you're worn out now. At least that way I'll be able to give some of the children in the area the education they deserve. Yeah, sugar, but you just be giving up one set of problems for a whole set of bigger ones. Clarence, there'll always be problems. Just going to school for some of these children is a problem. So where are you going to have your school? How are you going to pay for it? 
Please don't try to stop me with details. I will find a place, and I will find the money. Sugar Pie, tell me something. Does the word impossible have any meaning for you at all? No. Marva Collins found the place, and she found the money, but she didn't find a generous philanthropist to sponsor her vision. She didn't know any. She was in one of Chicago's worst areas, the west side of the city, where there aren't any. No, what Marva Collins found was herself, everything within her. Oh, we can just move out the tenants upstairs, and those two back rooms will break down the wall between them. Break. Classroom, that's all I need. Oh, babe, it's not that simple. Everything would have to be rewired, reframed. And you know, if we move those tenants out, our income would be cut down even more. My retirement fund. So Marva offered up her teacher pension, a mere $5,000 to start a school. It was all she had, and she put it all on the line. And her wildly supportive husband put it all on the line. Well, I guess you better turn in your keys then. File for your permit. Thank you. Excuse me. Excuse me, can you help me, please? Did you take a number? What can I do for you? I'd like to open a private elementary school, and I'd like to apply for a license. You don't need one. No county or state license is required. You mean anyone can start a school without a permit, credentials, or anything? That's about the size of it, unless, of course, you want recognition. No, thanks. I already know who I am. I, no, I mean, you don't have to have a license, but you do want the state to know who you are. When you apply for recognition, a team will visit you, and they will check your school for health, safety, and curriculum. Once you have their sanction, you got free milk, free books. He who eats my bread does my will. <laughs> I beg your pardon. You see, if I accepted government handouts, I'd have to listen to them. And I don't want anyone telling me how to teach. Suit yourself. But there are a lot of parents that won't put their kids in a school unless it's recognized. Oh, just a minute, please. I'm a little confused. Uh, let me get this straight. For me to get recognition, I would have to fill out all of these forms. But if I just wanted a license to start my school, I wouldn't have to do anything? Amazing, isn't it? But what if I were crazy or demented or illiterate? If you're illiterate, you're lucky. No forms to fill out. Marva Collins wasn't illiterate, but you might have considered her crazy. 13 of the 15 original students at her West Side Preparatory School came with the label of learning disabled. Here's one of them, Michael Anderson. I had a client just a couple months ago brought up Shakespeare out of nowhere. And we sat after having coffee for three hours. You know, well, what did you learn Shakespeare? Fourth grade. I knocked him off his feet. He couldn't believe it. Fourth grade? There were no miracles, Marva said. There is nothing miraculous or magical about their successes. It took only love and determination. 
basically I was told that I was borderline retarded, that I would never read. So I was basically written off. I was supposed to be put back a couple of grades, but I, I wasn't when I came to Miss Collins. And it's quite a story, Marva Collins' story. And again, she's the founder of Westside Preparatory School. And when we come back, we're going to continue her story. We're spending an hour on this story. We rarely do that, but this one deserves it. I wanted to read you one more passage, though, from her book, Ordinary Children, Extraordinary Teachers. This one really struck us. And Alex has done a great job, as always, preparing these segments. And she says this, I was the same kind of teacher in the public schools. The children were poor. They were inner city kids. But I insisted that they rise to my expectations. I had one little girl whose mother was an alcoholic. She had missed, I looked in her records, 101 days. There were only 181 days in the school year. When I got her in my class, she came to school every day. One day I noticed her dress was on the wrong side out. I whispered in her ear and I said, Carol, sweetheart, your dress, it's on the wrong side out. And she said back to me, I know, Mrs. Collins, but I didn't want to miss school and it was dirty on the other side. You see what we can do? She concluded. And again, same kid, 101 missed days out of 181 the year before. And with Miss Marva Collins, zero missed days. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The story of Marva Collins continues after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our own Alex Cortez's feature on the life story of Marva Collins, the late public school teacher in one of Chicago's worst neighborhoods, the west side of the city, and a dramatic story of teaching in an indifferent public school system, and when she finally couldn't take it anymore, she started her own school, the west side preparatory school, in her own house, and with all of her savings, $5,000. Before we return, I want to read one more passage from Marva's book, Ordinary Children, Extraordinary Teachers. Quote, Children rebel against order, but they respect nothing else. They tell us that they want the easy way, that they want to get by. I used to say to children in the public schools, you know, when you're in this classroom, why do you behave? Why do you stop when you see me? 
And they would tell me, because we know that you won't take it. I would say, I don't hit you. How do you know? And they said, all you need to do is look at us. But I think somehow they know who they can get by. And if you lose them, if you lose a child on day one, you can forget it. You will not get that class back again. They respect the fact that you maintain your own classroom. And boy, that goes for everything, and particularly parenting. And now let's return to Alex's feature on Marva Collins. I think I am pretty wonderful. I think I am bright. I think I am unique. Or, and I'll teach every child in here to think that. When they misbehave, their punishment is they have to write 100 reasons why they are too wonderful to do what they're doing. And that they have to be in alpha order. I'm adorable, I'm beautiful, I'm courageous. I give them the first ones until they get the hang of it. I'm delightful, or I'm effervescent, or I'm fabulous, I'm heavenly, I'm idolized, I'm just wonderful, I'm a kindred spirit. I am laudable, I am momentous, or I am never, never indolent, and it goes on to Z. And if they do it again, then they have to use another synonym. They can't use adorable anymore. Now the children will say to new students, I don't know why you don't behave, because I'm tired of telling Mrs. Collins how wonderful I am. She would grab my face and say, Pretty girl. <laughs> yeah. Honey, you're brilliant. That's right. Especially Craig. She would take his head and raise it up. Speak up, honey, you're brilliant. That's right. And, you know, after someone telling you that... Every day. Every day. Five days a week. For three or four years. You know, that's in you. That becomes a part of you. You are brilliant, honey. And then we were like doing Shakespeare. We put on the plays and we had the three witches. Yes, yes, that was fun. 60 Minutes reported that if Marva's graduates had the same outcomes as their public school peers in the area, one of them would have been murdered, at least two of them would be in prison, and five would be on welfare. But Marva's graduates are all still alive, and none are in prison, and none are on welfare. You will read a difficult book twice a month, you memorize a poem every week, and you'll write a theme every single day. There will be mathematics, vocabulary, history... Say what? It's all right, Mark. If you do not wish to learn, if you do not want an education, all you have to look forward to in life is poverty and welfare. You see, children, the system has people con. Welfare is just another word for slavery. For instance, did you ever know a child on welfare to go to Hawaii? to eat in fine restaurants, live in nice houses. That's the first thing I hope you learn. That there are no free rides. That you pay a price for everything. So, if you want to live a decent life, you'll just have to work for it. I ain't doing none of that stuff. I am not doing any of that stuff, Mike. Any of that stuff. Say it. I am not doing, I am not doing any, of that any of that stuff. You have that right. It's a free country, Mark. If you do not wish to learn, you have the right to fail. Now listen. I love you. I love you. 
You're a bright boy. You're a handsome boy. But you do not have the right to disturb the other children's right to learn. Now, if you wish to fail, you may do so quietly. Stop interrupting. And stop tapping that pencil. Pick it up. This moment, these outcomes, almost didn't happen. How much money do we have left? After we pay for the new books we ordered, about forty dollars. How many students you got? Counting Patty and Cindy, five. Any paying? Well, just so you know. We're gonna break even. About two thirds of these desks here have to have paying customers. Oh, we'll make it, Clarence. I just know we will. Oh, by the way, Bob Clemens called. He wants me to remodel his basement. Well, I hope you told him you couldn't. You've been working too hard, honey. Sugar, we can use the money. Well, from here on out, we're living on plastic. Yeah, that's two hundred dollars. And when it's used up, you let me know. No, I can't take your money yet, honey. Why don't we just try it for a few days? And maybe if it... No. My child can't take no maybes. If she starts, she stays. She started with Marva Collins, but the government, they tried to stop them from staying at it. My son had a teacher like you. You know, he's a straight-A student, and he can't do half what I just saw. Yeah, I like your style, Mrs. Collins. You like it well enough to forget this inspection business? Uh, I wish I could. You see, what you're doing up there is terrific, only you shouldn't be doing it up in that room. That room is all we have, all the children have. This neighborhood doesn't even have a truant officer. It seems to me someone's actively trying to educate... Classrooms can... need ceiling sprinklers, fire exits. Here's a list of the changes that have to be made. And when we come back, the last installment of this hour-long story of Marva Collins. And again, I want to hit you with one more passage, as we have throughout the hour, from Ordinary Children, Extraordinary Teachers. And I love this one. Quote, We do not have to teach our children about not getting pregnant here. They have learned what they want from their lives. We have no time for sex education classes or drug abuse classes. Our kids will tell you that they have too much to say yes to. We're supposed to tell children just say no to drugs, but we have to give them something to say yes to. Great words and a great story. Marva Collins' story. When we come back, again, that last portion And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And to catch all of our storytelling, please go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And our This Day in History segment in particular, I think you'll love. It's 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and sometimes hour-long storytelling 
on some of the great and not-so-great figures in American history. You'll love the storytelling. It hits everything from sports to the arts to folks like Alexander Hamilton, Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, and everyone in between. More after these messages. The Marva Collins story continues. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of our own Alex Cortez's feature on the life story of the late Marva Collins, the teacher who had enough with an indifferent Chicago public school system and started her own school in her own house. But before we return, I want to read one more passage from Marva's book, Ordinary Children, Extraordinary Teachers. And I quote, We have the shopping centers. We have so many things to do on Sundays. The kids just do not get to church anymore. Yet we've removed the values from our schools and we wonder why they behave the way they do. We're expecting them to behave the way we think they should behave because we grew up on certain values. But these children have not been exposed to these values. You can only do as you know how to do. Sure, We can talk about the parents who do not care. But if we do not change the children, then we are all doomed. Think that today's miseducated children will one day lead us. You know, I find myself looking in the cockpit of airplanes to see if the pilot looks literate. It sounds funny, but it's very important to me. I try to select my doctors today who are old enough to have killed enough patients to know what they're doing. It gets very scary because we are in a just-good-enough attitude generation. We tell our children, quote, if you are a doctor and they cut two centimeters to the right, it doesn't mean I guess or I think. It means exactly two centimeters to the right. I think we have to get back to that precision, that doing it right again mentality. You see... We see it in every area of society. Try to get someone to work for you at your house, paid to do repairs. Nobody takes the pleasure of doing it right anymore. We don't have that pride anymore. That's my work. And now let's return to our celebration of Marva Collins' life as she's fighting for the survival of her Westside Preparatory School. And when the Chicago Sun-Times first smelled whiffs of her success, their reporter thought, the government must have played some role. She couldn't have done this all on her own. Well, is this some sort of program? Uh, Do you get federal money? 
Come here, Mom and Peach. Give a man a fish and what? He'll eat for a day. Teach him to fish, huh? He'll eat forever. Who said that? Marcus Aurelius. You are just getting so smart, I'm gonna have to make you a teacher. <laughs> That's why I don't accept federal funds. Hmm? They've been pouring federal funds into this neighborhood for years. Hasn't changed. In my estimation, federal funds are not the solution. It's part of the disease. And you're the antidote? No, no, not me. But I'll tell you this, everything works when teaching works. It's as easy as that, and as hard. The students, they're terrific. You must have handpicked them. Most of the children I never met until their first day. The Sun-Times' headline, Blackboard Magic. Daddy, come quick! Our school is in the newspaper! And then Zay Smith from the newspaper police said they had so many telephone calls, they want to do a follow-up story. Boy, I'd like to see those bureaucrats try to give us a hard time now. And the phone's been ringing off the hook, Dad. It got the world's attention. 60 Minutes came to the school. Prince said he wished he went to a school like hers. And he decided to give Marva proceeds from his Purple Rain tour. $500,000. President Ronald Reagan asked her to be the Secretary of Education. And she said no, no to the president, remarking, as if I didn't have enough to battle with already. And then she said no to the next president, George H.W. Bush too. She now had 220 students in a waiting list of 175 more. In her home, it just wasn't big enough anymore. So the West Side Preparatory School found a new home. And Marva traveled all over the globe, training 4,700 teachers, principals, and administrators. But her greatest triumph? According to one of her greatest supporters, Mike Kaiser, it was when Chicago Public Schools selected her to manage three of their failing schools. That same school system that chased her out because she actually taught. And by just halfway through her first year, the reading scores of students at two of those schools doubled. Math scores? They're up 50%. And then someone thought she should run more schools and offered her $1 million to start 100 Marva Collins schools. But she denied them too, saying, I knew that I could not live with myself if there was one child in one of those schools not learning. And I thought that it would become too much of a Herculean task to staff 100 schools across the country with teachers, with dedicated teachers, motivated teachers, and teachers who teach because they care. We can all pay teachers to teach, but how much do you really pay a teacher to care? Mrs. Collins, this is for me, with help from Charles Dickens, our distinguished guest, the ornament of our room. May you never leave us but to better yourself, and may your success among us be such as to render bettering yourself impossible. So may thy face be biased when we close our lives indeed. So may we, when realities are melting from us, like the shadows which we now dismiss, still find thee near us, pointing Get back to work. We have promises too. 
creativity. I don't know too much about it myself, so we'll have to learn it together. Clarissa, are you a genius? No. Is your daddy a millionaire? No. Well, open the book. One mom versus the machine. And great work as always, Alex. I know that Greg put in a lot of effort in that as well, and it's great hearing the the actors' voices as well. You get a sense for who this lady was. I want to read just a couple of more things from her book, Ordinary Children, Extraordinary Teachers. She wrote, Many parents get aggravated by our policy that if you do not work, you do not eat. Our children learn it very well. It's more difficult for our parents. You only have to take a lunch from a child one day, and you feel sorry, and you want to give in. You see those big crocodile tears come, and you really want to give him his lunch. But then you hear that kid tell another kid the next day, you'd better get busy finishing that work because it's going to soon be lunchtime, and... Here, if you don't work, you don't eat. Those are some pretty tough rules. And they work in tough neighborhoods. They work in not-so-tough neighborhoods. They work in my house. Here's Marva one more on lunchtime. And again, from her book, Ordinary Children, Extraordinary Teachers. Some of my most important work with children takes place at lunchtime. I have always insisted on eating lunch with my children instead of being separated off with the other teachers. I try to rotate sitting next to a different child every day. A particular child might come to school without lunch. Some children have problems all the way around. A student situation is often consistent. No lunch money, no skills, no self-image either. These students will tell me they are not hungry, and I will tell them if they won't eat. I'm not going to eat either. Eventually we share, and the children come to learn that we are all in this together. Just beautiful stuff. And this is the last of so many of the great stories in Ordinary Children, Extraordinary Teachers. And again, one last time from Marva Collins. When President Reagan came to visit us, a five-year-old walked up to him and said, Do you know who I am, Mr. President? And he said, no. He told the president his name, and he said, I'm the brightest child in the whole world. Don't you want to be like me when you grow up? Marva said no to Reagan on becoming his secretary of education, but here's what she said she would have done. If I did become secretary of education, one of the things I would do is pay the teachers more or at least have a national ceremony for good teachers. And my dad was a teacher his whole life, ended up being a superintendent of schools. He would have agreed with this. He would have also wanted the ability to get rid of his bad teachers and to pay different teachers different amounts depending on their productivity and their performance. What a crazy idea. I know Martha would have agreed with that as well. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories, the story of Marva Collins. 
one mom against the machine. Habib and this is Our American Stories and the other day I was flying and I bumped across an airline magazine article about intentionally planning to eat with people you don't know. That's right, I just said it. It talked about a company called Eat With where you can sign up to attend a stranger's dinner party that they host in their home and every guest is a complete stranger. But not so once the dinner is over and that's the beauty of this. And we're fortunate to be joined by one of the first employees of Eat With, Noam Klinger. When she joined the company in 2014, it was a startup in Tel Aviv, Israel, with only six or seven employees. And she was the community manager for one of their two markets. Now they're in, get this, 200 cities across the globe and coming to a market near you. And she's now the global chief operating officer. And Noam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get into Eat With, let's talk about you. Tell us about your childhood in Israel. We always like to talk to people involved in business life. Your childhood in Israel and what it was like, and how did it shape you? So I grew up in Israel in a small neighborhood just outside of Tel Aviv, a place where everyone knew everyone, and I grew up with people who are still my best friends till this very day. I even married uh, my neighbor, who was my best friend as a child. So a wonderful childhood. Um, As a family, we traveled extensively, and my parents always pushed me to see the world, to immerse myself in other cultures, and to follow my passions and dreams. There's, um, you know, this talk about the Jewish mother who will keep her children close to her. So my mother was the opposite. She kept saying, go travel, meet people, try new things, and that's what I did. So when I graduated... When I got out of the Army, I traveled in South America for a year. I lived in New York. I lived in Barcelona and London. I traveled in India for a very long time. And I think this played a a great role in shaping the person I am today. Moreover, food has always been a great, great passion of mine and a big part of my family culture. We used to cook together. We used to host a lot of people. Every Friday dinner, we would host 20 to 30 people, an open table, and me and my father will create a new menu each week and produce it and host, and the door will be open, and people will join the table, and we keep this tradition till this very day. Now I'm trying to do it myself in San Francisco. And if, I, would, I would guess that in some ways, now I'm... The, uh, the, the, the benefits you got from this and the joy you took in it uh, was instrumental in you starting and working with, or just at least working with this essential startup. Uh, it was that 20 or 30 so folks every Friday in that, in that family of yours, and not many other families were doing this kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. I was very fortunate to meet Eat West because I felt, in a way, this is a combination of everything I love. And it was an opportunity to bring this passion of mine and my family tradition and culture to my day-to-day work. So I kind of felt like I was 
raised to this to this idea of meeting people around a dinner table. And Noam, you you served in the IDF uh, as an intelligence officer. And folks, for those of you who don't know, in Israel, you're joining the army, male, female. You're going in in some capacity and you're serving. And you said this in our pre-interview, the army is a big part of who I am now, my professional skills on how to deal with people and manage big projects. I was only 18 when I went in, and it's an organization of young people, so you have lots of responsibility in your hands. So two things I think are central. Your mom, rather than keep you close, pushed you away and out, but not pushed you away from her. She just wanted you to learn. And by goodness, she probably got you to be closer to her by doing that. So every parent listening... And take note, there are different ways to do these things. But then this military experience, you told us this had a central part of your, uh, sort of your, your, your character being formed early. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. So I think the Army, um, you think of a military service as going into the field, but for me, serving in the intelligence force was a training for the startup culture. I was working in a very innovative uh, unit with... Uh, 200 soldiers by my side. Later, I was the commander of 200 people. So in the age of 20, I had 200 people who reported to me. This is a huge experience for a 20 years old. Well, you, can't like, like an, you cannot act like an idiot when 200 people are reporting to you. Exactly. And you get a lot of responsibility. You, tr- you train yourself in, in skills that are later very, very relevant to, to acting in the real world. And let's talk about the culture in Tel Aviv, because per capita, next to Silicon Valley, there are more startups there than just about anywhere else in the world. And I don't know that most Americans think of Israel and uh, this city called Tel Aviv as startup nation, but it is. Talk about what's going on there in the water, what's going in there in the culture. Why is Tel Aviv Tel Aviv? So first, I just want to say that after living abroad, I still feel Tel Aviv is one of the best cities to live in. It's a combination of diverse and creative people, old and new. It has the beach. It has an amazing food scene, as well as art and music. And that's along with the startup scene, was really, really strong, and with a mature ecosystem of accelerators, investors, uh, VCs, angels, mentors. Um, you can hardly go to lunch without bumping into a fellow funder, developer, or investor. Everyone knows everyone, and there are lots of collaborations and general sense of a community driving everyone forward. Personality-wise, I think the Army, again, and the military service has a lot to do with that. So it's, look at it. I, I kind of like to look at it as a um, startup factory. So a lot of 21 years old graduating from the Army and are already trained in the most innovative units of the Army, ready to join a startup um, with a lot of um, actual experience, as well as a sense, um, a basic sense that life isn't granted and you never know what's going to happen in Tel Aviv in a year from now, which makes people, t- um, people tend to take more risks to be very passionate, to be very aggressive, and not to be afraid of failures. They are willing to, to play it all. And I think this is what creates this sense of excitement and innovation and creation. And Noam, hold that thought. We'll be back to learn more about your dinner party startup, Eat With. 
after this short break. American Stories, and we're talking with Noam Klinger of Eat With, an Israeli startup that's the Uber or Airbnb of dinner parties. We were just talking about how the culture of Tel Aviv and Israel is so amazingly supportive of startups and risk-taking, the incredible talent pool, the vibrant energy, and the sober realization that Israelis can never quite take tomorrow for granted. So Noam, please tell us more about your particular startup, Eat With. How does it work? So EatWith is a marketplace that brings people together through food and homes around the world. This is the vision, to bring people together. We have about 1,000 hosts, home cooks, and professional chefs in 200 cities globally who host tourists and locals for dinner parties, cooking workshops, and special culinary experiences. You can do it as a tourist when you travel abroad, or you can do it as a local in your own city. It doesn't matter. You can join a table, like you said, with people you don't know and experience something unique together, or you can book the whole table and get a special private culinary experience in the house of the chef. Um, I like to look at it. Think about you going to Barcelona, for example. Um, You can dine with all the tourists in the Rambla and eat paella straight from the microwave, or you can go and meet Alberto and Ella, our host, in their cool apartment, cook with them a paella from scratch, and meet their friends, talk about the Catalan culture. I think people nowadays are looking for more intimate, authentic experiences, um, and this is exactly what Eatlist provides. Um, I think that's a, it's a remarkable thing, that authenticity you're talking about, because I think you're dead right. I think more than ever, when it, when it, whether it comes to content or whether it comes to, and I believe you're in the content business, a meal is theater, a meal is, uh, is content, the food is content, the conversation is content, and it's an experience like going to the theater or anything else, and maybe better, um, because these are real-life relationships. You go to the theater, you leave, the only relationship you have is with the person you went to the theater with. You've learned a little more, you've been moved, but that's it. Um, you don't get to know the people in the audience when you're going to a play. I think that's what's distinctive here. Talk about how you find the people who host, because I would assume that you have to do a lot of quality control on that space. This isn't like Uber. Um, you've got to make sure that your brand is kept, kept solid and strong and protected by vetting properly the people who are going to be hosting these parties. A couple of bad experiences and your brand name suffers. How do you do that? So you're right. We take the vetting process very, very seriously. Um, we have so some of our hosts. We actually found them ourselves. Um, the other way to go is to apply online and to go through our application process. Then we handpicked the best host in every city, 
the ones who will not only feed you with amazing food, but will also give you the full experience. So we're looking for this unique combination that is not only you know how to cook an amazing meal, which is fresh and unique, um, but also the personality of the host. And this is the most important thing for us. So who is the person who will open the door? He has to be a people person, someone who loves hosting, who knows how to control the dinner and to make conversation flowing and to make you feel at home, as well as the space. So it has to be clean. It has to have a good vibe in it. Um, So it's a very unique combination. We go through a very um, distinctive application process, and in the very end, we do a demo dinner where the chef actually opens his house for for guests, and our and our guests, um, the the people who are attended multiple eat with dinners will go to those dem- demo dinners along with our staff to vet the actual place, and the host. So every host on the platform is vetted. Uh, we take only 4%, 4 to 5% of our applications, and they, they will make it to the platform in the end of the day. Now, uh, you know, what's interesting is I thought food trucks were a fascinating thing that happened, but that's not an experience. It's just an interesting way for people who can't afford to open a storefront to make a living and then maybe open a storefront or maybe not just have a bunch of food trucks. I think this is fascinating because it gives the person who owns an apartment, just like an Airbnb, to an opportunity for revenue. Plus, it gives the person who might want to do something other than eat in a restaurant get the opportunity to have a real-life experience with someone from Barcelona, or even someone here in Little Oxford, Mississippi, a city, by the way, that lots of tourists from around the world come to because it's the home of William Faulkner. It's the home of the blues. Elvis's Gracie Mansion is not far away. And people from all over the world come to this little pocket of the country. And my goodness, you can go to one of our restaurants or you could come to my house. My wife could have, well, she loves to have a big open area. We have movie nights on Sunday nights. And we invite random people together on Sunday nights. We've been doing this now for seven months. It's now the joy of our life. We're going to do it forever. Long dinner and then a, a, a movie. And that's every Sunday. Now it's getting, we're, we're sort of catching wind in Oxford. Now we're not doing it for money. I think my point is that this might be an interesting way for someone who can cook to not only host and, and do some interesting things for folks, but people are paying for this experience, correct? Amazing. You just got in. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> and so, so talk about how, how, how this can be a, a neat experience. I mean, obviously, you've got to audition. You've got to have the talent. You've got to be able to cook. And you've got to be able to host, which is equally important, I would think, in this matter. Great meal, but you don't know how to keep the conversation going. Still not a great experience. So this, is a, this takes a real talent. But my goodness, what if you could do this two or three nights a week and you're a stay-at-home mom and you wanted to really make some extra money and also really have a tremendous experience but not risk a lot of capital? Um, this becomes a really interesting earning opportunity uh, for someone who can start to get good ratings from the people who are going and enjoying this, this uh, offering. Talk about exactly. that. Exactly. We have, uh, I would say, 25% of our hosts are using EatWest as their main source of income. The other 75% will do it as a hobby or as a supplement income uh, on the side. But for people who are doing it full-time, this is a huge opportunity. Think of, like, opening a restaurant nowadays. This is a huge risk, a huge financial risk as well as your time and efforts. And doing an EatWest, doesn't cost anything as a start, and you don't have to risk anything. 
So for those people, this is an amazing experience to test their recipes, to test their audience, to see how the reactions for their food. And we have hosts who are doing now about $20,000 a month. So wow. you, you can really make an income out of it. Now, do you think that there is going to be a time in the same way that Uber got challenged by local taxi cabs, the same way that food trucks were starting to get challenged by local restaurants going to the city council, um, do you think there's going to be a time sooner, has it already happened, where some cities through the restaurant associations are going to go, hey, that $20,000 a month was mine, you're not regulated, you're not being taxed, um, are you worried that some of the things that have happened to Uber and some of the things that have happened to Airbnb are about to happen to you, or are they happening? So first, I'd, I would just say that we're working with restaurants in a very close relationship. So we had uh, some famous ho- uh, chefs from famous restaurants who decided to do an Eat With event just to have a more personal connection to their audience and to invite people to their own kitchens. So I don't see it as a comp- direct competition, but as a collaboration that can come along. Obviously, the regulation is always a good question. Um, we're opening, an, opening a new category. It's a new, it's a new economy, the sharing economy, and it raises a lot of questions that hadn't been answered so far. But. We will get to them when the time comes, and I'm sure we can find solution with each um, city council and state as it comes. And I'm sure you're right, because in the end, and this is what I found, you know, the other day I'm sitting in my little town of Oxford, Mississippi, a big college town, and the kids are talking about how the town was trying to block Uber, and they had successfully vetoed and worked over the city council and said, hey, come on, and now there's Uber in our, in our little town, and in the end, the citizens are going to make the decision, and the politicians just have to be very careful, because people want choices, and that choice is not only of where to eat, but also choices of how to make a living. And this sharing economy is new, and I think in the end it's going to work through all of its growing pains. This is Our American Stories, and after these messages, we'll continue our conversation with Noam Klinger of Eat With, an Israeli startup looking to change how we eat when traveling, or around even our own hometowns. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we've been talking to Noam Klinger of Eat With about how her company brings together total strangers for beautiful gatherings in the homes of thoroughly vetted hosts. Well, they may start as strangers, but I bet they don't stay that way for long. Noam, will you please tell us some of your favorite stories about folks who met at Eat With Dinners? Of course. So I have a lot of them. You know, three years of people around tables produces a lot of content. Uh, I was just invited to a wedding that will happen next summer of one of our top hosts in Barcelona who matches future wife in an Eat With Dinner. So she was a guest and he was a host, um, which is a beautiful story. Uh, this is not the first wedding we had at Eat With. We had two hosts who got married. They met through Eat With Meetup and they got married. And we have a lot of love stories coming our ways from people who met around the table as guests. And we have uh, guests who named their newborn after the name of their host because they had such an amazing experience. So they send us a letter with the photo of their kid and the story. And one of my favorite hosts in uh, Rome, she was a real estate agent in, uh, in our past, and now she's a full-time Eat West host. And she, every time she have guests over, she will either go with them afterwards to a party. She will hang out with them the day after. And she really creates those meaningful experiences. In, in last uh, April, she visited Israel and stayed in guests she hosted before in her house. She stayed now in their home uh, on our travel to Israel. And we had the opposite way when a guest, a host from Israel, who hosted a lot of Americans along the years, decided to do a road trip along the, um, the West Coast, staying at her former guest houses. So they invited her to stay at their place after they dined with her in Israel. That's terrific. And Noam, we've noticed that you're on the board for the Israeli branch of Nifty the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. We absolutely love this group, and we had on our show the two best friends who won Nifty's 2013 National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge with their business built around socks that securely hold shin guards for soccer players. You can hear that interview on our website, by the way, at ouramericannetwork.org. Now, um, we talked earlier about the superb culture for entrepreneurship and startups in Tel Aviv, and throughout Israel. So it's natural that Nifty would want to work with Israelis. Please tell us more about Nifty, what the group is doing in Israel, and how you participate. Share a favorite memory or two. Okay, so you touched one of my favorite projects I'm involved in, and I'm happy you asked about it. Um, So as you said, Nifty, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, originally it's an American program, but it was brought to Israel, I think, in 2006, I hope I'm not wrong, um, and their mission is to provide educational programs that inspire young people from low-income or deprived communities to stay in school, to recognize business opportunity, and to plan for a successful future. Basically, take the tools that we have in our day-to-day day-to-day professional world and to give it to them in the early when they're young um, it's not about turning them into entrepreneurs or make or 
building businesses. It's about giving them the basic tools and networking skills, asking questions, innovation, working in teams, and all those skills, the soft skills that actually help them to be better people in the end of the day and to open up doors for them um, in their future. I'm in love with this project. I've seen amazing cases of people who got to really change their life through this program. I just, um, I think a week ago, the global competition of the NIFTY teams from all around the world met in New York, and I just got the photos of the Israeli team of four boys who took the flight the first time of their life. They mm. bought a suit for the first time of their life, and they had to pitch in English for 10 minutes about their new startup idea. And for them, that was a life-changing experience. Oh, indeed. You know, what I find is, and I've worked with uh, some inner-city kids here in, in the United States on this, and they're always thinking, how can I do a startup? I have no money. And I said, look, you do a startup because you might have a great idea. And someone with money might give you not only the money, they might give you the training. There's a thing called social capital. And very often what we're looking for is your idea and you, not your money. We're looking for you. And I think that there's such a level of ignorance about how companies get started, who starts them, and how they get started. And I'm so glad that you're working with Nifty. It's it's such a tremendous organization. If we can educate young people about this, we might just bump into a few more risk takers who were young. Look, I'm Lebanese. You're Israeli. It's in our blood. I mean, in, in, my, in my family, if you don't go out and start a company or do something, you're disinherited. Um, we have to do it. So it, it's just a, it's a cultural thing. Um, how often do you personally attend Eat With Dinners, Noam? Uh, just you yourself. Do you spend time in the field just dropping in on Eat With Dinners? So it touched the fun part of my job. I try to do it as much as I can. I'm a strong believer in keeping like con- straight connection with the host and the guests. So I try in I try to go as much as I can. There were times when it was three to four times a week. Now I have a two years old back home. So I do it less, but I if I'm not at dinners I would talk with hosts, I would talk with guests daily. I felt this is a big part of making this product and service better and understanding how to move forward. That's a great idea. You know, Bernie Marcus, one of my heroes, we did an hour on him. He's the founder of Home Depot. He said that half his life he spent just visiting the stores and making sure the connection between the customer and the people on on the front lines were tight and then giving them the resources to solve their problems. But he was always concerned with the interface of the customer and the product and the rest of it be damned, and make sure that management is responsible for that, that position. And so I'm sure that's uh, got to be a preoccupation with you. Those dinners start to go down in quality, and you've got yourself a problem, don't you? Mm-hmm. And let's talk about one last thing before we leave. You decided to leave Tel Aviv uh, and bring your corporate team over to San Francisco. Uh, how, how has that experience been different? And talk about what life's like in the Bay Area uh, since you've moved. So I just moved three weeks ago, and I must say it's an amazing experience so far. Um, I'm still investigating the city and trying myself to meet as many people as I can and to experience food and culture 
and there's a lot to experience here, that's for sure. Well, you're at the perfect company to do that, by the way. <laughs> I mean, just start doing Eat With Dinners, and you'll meet lots of people in the city. Exactly. And, exactly. Uh, it, Noam, this is a wonderful story. Eat With is the company, and my goodness, what a great idea to bring people together. We're talking to Noam Klinger, and this is just a part of our regular Entrepreneur Series. And thank you so much for joining us, Noam. This is Our American Stories, and we just love stories like that. Culture of entrepreneurship, leadership, great food, world-class hospitality. What more can you ask for? We've been talking to Noam Klinger of Eat With about her Israeli-born startup that connects folks who don't know each other to have great dinner parties. It's like Uber. It's like Airbnb. But for dinner, conversation, and making friends in new places. And by the way, make you and your family a little bit extra money on the side. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. stories. And for our On Leadership series, our own Alex Cortez interviewed Steve Bonner, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, the best and most comprehensive cancer care center in the country. Centers, that is. And they're 100% dedicated to treating cancer and nothing else at their five facilities. And in addition to discussing leadership, Alex also talked with Steve about the fascinating founding of this company and its founder, Dick Stevenson. And we wanted to bring you this founding story on its own. We love founding stories. We've brought you Home Depots, Walmarts, the Myers, and actually I think that the founding of the Godfather. And I like to link art and commerce because when you hear that hour, the struggle that Mario Puzo had to make a novel, the struggle that Francis Ford Coppola had to turn that novel into a movie, these guys are entrepreneurs no different than Steve Jobs or Bernie Marcus. Here's Alex and his conversation with Steve Bonner on the founding of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. For Dick Stevenson, it was all too personal of a story, a death that led him to birth the company into life. So many healthcare companies and hospitals, you know, talk about being patient-centered and patient-driven and, you know, all this, what a lot of patients think is just nonsense verbiage. I mean, talk about how his story you know, really makes you know, Cancer Treatment Centers of America different. His passion came from his mother's experience. He wasn't a healthcare guy either. He was an international merchant banker, an investor, a lawyer, and um, <clears throat> his mother got cancer, and he used his global scope to identify a number of innovations that were truly innovative in the delivery of cancer care in America, that he thought could be helpful, and he brought him back, and he was stopped at her bedside by the 
FDA and the AMA and the insurance companies. And as she died a very unhappy and painful death, he said, it sure seems like this industry cares more about the bureaucrats than it does about the patients. And so he decided to try to try to create from the ground up a truly patient-centric model of care. The fact that this founding vision was deeply personal makes Cancer Treatment Centers of America stand apart from other healthcare providers. It's not that the others don't care, it's just not as personal. And that difference matters when you're dealing with the most personal of things, your health. So how did Dick Stevenson go about implementing his vision? You start out by marketing directly to patients, which nobody was doing at the time. Um, Everybody in cancer care was a referral model, so you build relationships with primary care physicians and you go on bended knee and say, send me your patients. So you guys were the first real advertiser? Yeah, in the exactly. Space. I mean, yeah. It was a significant amount of advertising today, but I, yeah. I don't know the history by of far, that. By far the biggest media advertiser in uh, healthcare delivery. The big pharma, you know, may do more. But yeah, exactly. And so he said, if I build this and say it's patient-centric, but I need doctors to send me patients, the doctor's my primary customer, not the patient. Hmm. So I'm not going to do that. And it rippled through healthcare. He was a tiny speck, but here in Illinois, where he started, the medical association was livid. And he's proud of the fact that so far, I believe, he's still the only non-physician ever, really, ever formally sanctioned by the Illinois Medical Society, and he was sanctioned for advertising direct to patients. And now look, you know, everybody does that, right? A very similar story played out in the legal profession. Before 1977, lawyers were not allowed to advertise their services until two revolutionary Arizonans decided to challenge the bans, and the Supreme Court ruled in their favor. Thankfully for Dick, he didn't have to go to the Supreme Court. He won in the court of public opinion. But that also takes convincing a lot more than nine folks in robes. Quite a feat. And what else did he do to put this public first? He also had this model of holistic integrative care and wanted to focus on people with late-stage complex cancer, which is what his mom had, which was in the most sophisticated end of the spectrum in terms of technology and talent and uh, space. And uh, in order to do that, he knew we needed to have the very best traditional care of chemo, radiation, surgery. But he also knew that If all we did was that, we were ignoring huge dimensions to the implications of the disease. If we didn't understand oncological nutrition, naturopathic intervention, psychological intervention, spiritual support, uh, exercise, humor therapy, laughter therapy, pet therapy, you know, everything that could de-stress this incredibly stressful event, then the immune system is working harder than it should work to support the care. And part of the irony of the Basic care in cancer is that we're assaulting the immune system at the very moment in time where it needs to be as good as it can be. You know, chemo is poison introduced as a general matter to the whole system. Does anyone even come close to providing that broad array of services? um, Not the way, not on an integrated basis. And when we started out, all of that was heresy. All that complementary care was heresy. And that was 
selling false hope, snake oil sales, you know, all that stuff. And now you can't go to any cancer provider that doesn't offer nutrition and naturopathic intervention and so forth. As you know, too, with the market, you can't pull off that snake oil business for too long. If you're, if you're truly not presenting those broad array of services, you're going to get exposed. Right. Exactly. And if you keep bringing it to patients, um, and then they decide, and part of our benefit was and is that every patient we saw had been diagnosed somewhere else and treated somewhere else, and they were so dissatisfied that they were out looking for something different. Their patients are so dissatisfied with the cancer care they received elsewhere that they travel over 300 miles on average, one way to get to one of their five facilities. And Steve told me that there are a ton of folks from Alaska that make the trip all the way to their facility in Arizona. And just think about how many other states and providers they have to pass to get to Arizona. It's just remarkable. This reality is also a testament to the culture at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Because it's one thing to have a great founding vision and great practical ideas but it's a whole other thing to create and cultivate the culture to implement them. How have they done this, and how have they maintained it over 29 years? Here's just one of the examples that Steve Bonner shared with me. We also never start a board meeting without having a patient talk to the board. Wow. Ever start the board meeting with a patient talking to the board. And I talk to other CEOs, and I say, how long since you've invited one of your customers to talk to the board, right? And eyebrows go over the top of their head and they say, well, what would they say? And I said, well, they might tell the truth, right? <laughs> Which is what they do. But it's such a compelling and uh, motivating window into what it is you're doing. You sit in these boardrooms and it's reimbursement and you know contracts and facilities and all that crap. And to sit there and look at it through the eyes of a patient is really spectacular. And this is another part of Dick's brilliance is that it's not just have them come and talk to you, but it always goes to, so what could we have done to make it better? What can we do to make it better? And now you're here not only based on what you've seen and heard, but you talk to other patients. Tell us, you know, what have we done that could have been better? How can we improve it? And it's a pretty, it was a pretty disciplined process management then where we capture these ideas and we report back as a part of the minute structure you know did we really do something and a couple times we uncovered something that was a big enough flaw and Dick stopped the board meeting and he said we have nothing more to meet here as a board until we fix this for this patient and he literally you know end of meeting management go close this hole for this patient and the, you have board members flying in from across the country yeah, for this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, the symbolism of that, and this ripples through the organization. You know, these patients who come and talk to the board, they don't just go home. They talk to all the other patients and what this like. And these things, in soft ways, just keep reinforcing this culture that it is about the patient, that that's what we care about. A lot of CEOs would be afraid of doing that. They don't want to. They won't intentionally bring in or or invite the bad news for right. the board to hear. Right. Exactly. Which I think I understand, and it's hard. I mean, I sat in some very uncomfortable board meetings, and so did the hospital CEOs who sit there with us, because we didn't know. You know, for whatever reason, nobody had bothered to tell us. And here's this thing that's a hole in our game, and. 
you have to embrace that, right? You have to say, it's like, it's like market research. You know, if you don't go and ask the world about yourself, then don't get surprised when all of a sudden you get blindsided by your reality. You know, the fish doesn't know it's wet. You swim around in this stuff and you just don't think about it. And these opportunities to peel open the reality of what you're doing and how you're doing it. And it's N of one. It's a, you know, anecdotal. But the aggregation of anecdotes of you know, hundreds of boards meetings over 30 years in the culture um, is really much more powerful than just anecdotes. The aggregation of anecdotes. And folks, we talk a lot about free enterprise here, and we talk about bureaucracies. And my goodness, Dick Stevenson solved a problem. His mom had died painfully. The patient wasn't the center of care. In our health care debates today, as you vote, as you think about voting, think about this segment. All the entrenched bureaucracies, not just the government, the health insurance companies, the hospitals themselves, the doctor associations, patient-centered care. Whichever candidate is talking about patient-centered care, vote for him or her. This is Lee Habib. We love these founding stories. This one may have been my favorite, connecting so much that matters in life, free enterprise, our health, our lives. Alex, great job on this. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Dick Stevenson, the founder of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Steve Bonner, the former CEO who brought this to all the public and to the American public, telling us the story of how it all came to be. 